0: reading this morning is from the book of Ephesians chapter 1 18 through 21. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his inca- incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age but in the one to come the circumstances surrounding the birth of jesus do not seem consistent with that of royalty the early chapters of matthew do not appear to describe the king of the universe perhaps the story of jesus that is recorded is that of a different kind of king King Jesus is not born in some far-off castle or with great fanfare. Instead, he was born into the muck and mire of the world he came to serve. It is unlikely, but this is how we encounter our king and discover his kingdom. Who is on the throne of your heart? continue in our King Jesus series, and I'm so glad you're here today. I know for some of you, it took extra effort to get here, especially those of you who come to first service, maybe those of you who are getting ready to go out of town or you're hosting big events at your home today. I'm thankful that you made this time a priority. It's so important that we gather as God's people to worship Him, to acknowledge who He is, and in doing that, to encourage each other, to let each other know that we're not in this life this journey this battle alone that we are here with and for each other and so I hope that you gain encouragement by being here by opening up the word of God together and letting the truth of God pour into your hearts and your minds to shape how you think and how you live as we sing together as we gather around the table and participate in this important act of communion remembering Jesus his life his death his resurrection and what that means to us and as we pause to pray to God, to speak to God, and hopefully to listen to God, we do a lot of talking sometimes, and we probably need to do more listening. And so I hope that this time together is a blessing. I know that you have other things going on today and tomorrow, but I am so thankful that you are here, and I just encourage you to be fully present in our time together as we continue, as we open up the Word of God together. If you have a Bible, you might open Philipp- to Philippians chapter 2 or scroll on your device, Philippians chapter 2, we're going to spend some time there this morning. And I'm going to need some help, and so I'm going to get this. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask for any volunteers. This is going to help us in our sermon this morning. Now, one of our ministers, Kevin, if you were here a few weeks ago, made the bold suggestion that a ladder like this could be an adequate substitute for a Christmas tree. And when he said that, I thought, you know, that is not a bad idea. No needles, no hassle. You just maybe put a few lights around it, put a few decorations on the steps. There you go. It's the same general shape of a Christmas tree. And so I thought, man, that is a great idea. And so if you choose to use a ladder instead of a Christmas tree, moving forward, be sure and credit Kevin and Katie because I think they have actually done that in their home before. The truth is, probably many of you have been on a ladder like this recently. Maybe to put the star on top of the Christmas tree or to hang decorations or lights outside your house. I read recently that every year 2.6 million people fall off a ladder or a stool like this, hanging Christmas lights, which is one more reason why I don't hang Christmas lights at Christmas time a very valid reason i think but this morning this ladder is going to help tell a story not a story in the sense of a fictional tale not a story in the sense of something that's nice to hear occasionally but the story the story that is your story because it is the story of Jesus the one who came from on high to live with us but also who ascended to sit at the right hand of God. It's going to tell a story, the simple ladder, a profound story that impacts your daily life, how you live, what you hold to be true, what you prioritize in your life, how you view yourself, how you view others, how you view your vocation, your purpose, all of those things, this simple ladder is going to help us tell that profound story that is so incredibly important. You know, this time of year, many people celebrate the birth of Christ. And although it's very likely Jesus wasn't born on December 25th, I am glad that we at least pause as a society, as a people, and acknowledge that Jesus was born, that he lived on this earth, that he put on flesh. We celebrate the incarnation, that Jesus did, in fact, put on flesh and plunge into the brokenness of our world. And because he did that, We have this high priest, this friend, this one who understands what life can be like. How challenging, how difficult, how painful life can be. One who knows and understands injustice. We often cry out of the injustice of our world in our own lives as though we have a Savior, a Lord, who doesn't get it. And of course, he does. And so I'm so thankful that we celebrate the birth of Jesus. No matter when we do it, we should do it probably more than once a year. And when we think about the birth of Jesus, so often the symbol that comes to mind is what? It's that little manger, isn't it? That little manger, perfectly manicured hay bed with the animals around it. And that's a fine symbol, but maybe a better representation of the incarnation is something like this, a ladder. Because notice what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 about this very event as he quotes what we call the Christ hymn. It's really a a, a bit of poetry, a a song about Jesus. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. He's saying in a very practical way, in your relationships with one another, in your dealings with each other, this, this attitude that informs how you interact and act among and with others. He says, put on the same attitude as that of Jesus. Have the same mindset As Christ. Well, what is that? Verse 6 Who being in very nature or the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant or the form of, it's that same word, taking the very form of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to death, even death. On a cross. Look at that phrase there in verse 7. He made himself nothing. Some versions say he poured himself out, he emptied himself. He willingly gave up his place with God. One version said he says he, he lowed himself. We might say it as he lowered himself. You see, he lowered himself. From his place on high, he willingly, intentionally, deliberately chose to pour himself out, to empty himself, to lower himself. The Bible uses directional terms like this. Above all, he lowered himself. And those terms are helpful because that's really all we have. They don't fully capture the essence or the sovereignty of Jesus nor do they fully capture the expanse that he crossed on our behalf. But words are all we have, and directional words help us understand. It's like when we say, looking up to heaven, or God looks down on us. We know that God can't be limited to a certain place or time, that heaven isn't necessarily up there as far as not the heavens, the skies, but the heaven. And yet we use those words because we understand those words. Those terms help us get some kind of comprehension, some kind of meaning to who God is and how he functions. And here we see that Jesus descended from on high, from his rightful place in heaven, that he willingly poured himself out, that he leveraged the status, the privilege, that everything that was his, now he didn't give up his deity. It's hard for us to get our minds around that. As he came to earth he put on flesh he was still one with God but he leveraged all of that status all of that privilege all of that glory and honor he set that aside and he descended and he was born in a very unremarkable way in a very unremarkable place to a very unremarkable couple he lowered himself not what we would think would be the arrival of a king, not what we would associate with royalty. You know, if you travel to Bethlehem today, you won't see a manger marking the spot where Jesus was born. I know that may surprise some of you. You won't see a stable. You won't see a barn. I don't even think there's an inn nearby. What you will find is a church, the Basilica of the Nativity. It is a church that is actually one of the oldest churches still standing. It was built in the This version was built around the 6th century, and it's had modifications along the way. There was actually an earlier version built in the 4th century to mark the place that is believed to be the place where Jesus was born. The place of the Incarnation. It's a remarkable place to visit, and if you go there, you'll notice something that is a little bit surprising. And that is access inside this church building. There is a very narrow, very small door that somewhere along the way has been cut out, only about four or five feet tall. And so to go into this church building, to ultimately go into the grotto or the cave or the the lower level, where it is believed Jesus may have been born, you have to bow down. You have to stoop down to get into this place. You know what this door is called? They call it the door of humility. The door of humility. Very fitting, isn't it? Very fitting for how Jesus came to this earth. Very fitting for how he was born. A lowly and humble birth. But you know, he didn't stop there. Because some people have humble beginnings, and what do they do? Boy, they pull themselves up by their bootstraps. They work hard, and they climb the ladder, and they ascend, and they make something of themselves. It's not that far to travel. Humble beginnings are relative, of course. But Jesus didn't stop there. Philippians 2, Paul says in this Christ hymn that he took on the form of what? A servant. He lowered himself even more. He took on the form of a servant. No one made him a servant. He chose to accept that role. But he didn't stop there. What else did he do? He lowered himself even more. He emptied himself. He poured himself Out Even more because he willingly submitted himself to ridicule, to shame. He was spat upon. He was treated with injustice in a mock trial. He was accused of things he didn't do. Ultimately, he was killed in the most shameful, the most disgraceful way a person could be killed in that day and time. He was crucified with no clothes on in front of the whole world. He poured himself out. He lowered himself. He made himself nothing. He didn't take on the form of or the nature of royalty, did he? No. He took on the form of a servant and submitted himself to the shame, to the injustice, to the suffering that he did not deserve. At the hands of the very ones he helped create. In doing so, he fulfilled the prophecy about him written long ago. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in high esteem? Like we would a king? Like we would royalty? Like we would the long-awaited Messiah? No, we held him in low esteem. There's one of those directional terms again, in low esteem. Jesus was at the very bottom of society. He was below the bottom rung. And as Jesus was crucified, he gave himself up, literally gave his life up. He was crucified. And then what happened? They buried his body deeper into the earth to make him even lower. Jesus was dead. He was gone. End of story, case closed. Everyone could go on with their lives, right? We know there's more to the story. We believe and we know that the darkness that consumed the land that day would be overcome by the light. We know that the shame, the injustice, the suffering of that Friday would give give way to the glory of Sunday morning. We know there is much, much more to the story because God would raise Jesus up, raise him from that tomb, from that borrowed grave deep into the earth. He would raise him up to live again and ultimately would ascend him to sit at his own right side. Much, much more to the story. We see the movement of Christ In Philippians chapter 2, we saw the downward descent of Jesus as he makes himself nothing, as he takes on the form of a servant, as he pours himself out. But Philippians 2 has more to say. There's more. There's another verse to the Christ hymn. Go back to Philippians 2. Notice the movement here. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. And he gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So just as we saw the descent of Jesus, now we see the ascent of Jesus. As God lifts him up, God raises him up and exalts him high above every name. I want you to notice Something. Did you notice something in the language of Philippians 2? Who was doing the lowering? Jesus was. Remember? He poured himself out. He emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. He did that. He initiated that. But who was doing the acting? Who was doing the motion, the movement, if you will, when God raised Jesus up? It was God. You see, Jesus didn't raise himself up. That's not just semantics. That is so important because so often we try to raise ourselves up. We try to lift ourselves up. We try to exalt ourselves. If anyone is going to be raised up, God is going to do the raising. Jesus lowered himself and God raised him up and exalted him. It's an important distinction to make. And Paul describes This theology of God raising him up. In Ephesians, we've been studying Ephesians in some of our Bible classes. The very first chapter, look at what Paul writes in verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. You see the directional language there, those terms? He placed everything under his feet. He raised him above all else. And there's also not just directional terms, but these absolute terms, above all, every name. Where did God place him? Where did God place him? He placed him at his right side, far above all rule and authority and power. Why is that significant? Well, I can assure you, for this first century audience, to whom Paul is writing, we call it Ephesians, they are worried about, borderline fixated on what's happening in the spiritual realms. They're worried about the spiritual warfare. And that's why Paul writes in Ephesians that, that our battle, our struggle, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and the powers of this dark world. And then what does he come along and say here about Jesus? He says, as bad as those things are, as frightening as those things that we don't always understand are, those powers, those rulers, those authorities, as terrifying as that might be, Jesus Is above all of them. You see, King Jesus is above all, including all rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world. We just finished up an important series on spiritual warfare. And in that series, we made it known and reminded ourselves that, first of all, Satan is real, that he's not just a concept, he's not a cartoon, he is real. And he wants to use deception and lies. He distorts the truth. He appeals to our logical nature. And there's just enough truth, there's just enough that makes sense, that we buy into those lies, and he appeals to our flesh with those lies. As he distorts the truth, it appeals to our flesh, and we give in to those lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And he drags us away from truth, and he drags us away from God. It's real. The battle is real. And for some reason, for some reason, the devil is allowed to have some level of influence in our world. In John's gospel, Jesus calls Satan the prince of this world, the ruler of this world. Here's what you need to know, what you need to never forget. Satan might be the prince of this world, but Jesus is king. Jesus is king. And that matters. That means something. Not just in concept, not just as we sing about him being king as we have done this morning. It means something for your daily life. And so as we listen to the ladder and the story of the ladder and we look at Philippians 2 and we look at Ephesians 1, we try to put it all together, what does it mean for our lives? What does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus is above all? What does it mean that he is seated at the right hand of God above all powers, all authorities, all rulers, that his name is higher and above every name? That has to mean something that is significant, it is meaningful. So let me just share two or three things that I believe that means. First of all, if Jesus is above all, and by if I mean since, because he is, if Jesus is above all, no one or nothing else is higher. Look at this directional term used in verse 21. He is far above. A very unqualified term. An absolute term. All rule, all authority, all power. Above every name. Not just for this age, but for the age to come all time. And here's the thing, you don't place Jesus there. God put him there. You don't place him there. You simply acknowledge and trust that he is there, or you do what? You reject that truth. So you don't get to determine where Jesus is. God put him there. You get to determine if you will accept that truth or you will reject it. And one of the ways that we most often reject that truth is by trying to put something else in that place. By trying to crowd Jesus out of that highest place. We try that with all kinds of things. Things that the world shows us looks favorable. Pleasure, success, money. You know all those things. All those trappings, all those pulls and tugs on our hearts and our lives. And we try to put those things, status, power, where Jesus belongs. Where God has put Jesus And what happens as we put those things up here? Where are we? We're down here. And what are we doing? We are looking up to those things. We are bowing before those things. The Bible has a word for that. It's called idolatry. And idolatry has been a problem for people for generations For generations, people have struggled with worshiping things and people and ideas rather than worshiping the one true God. And we today probably wouldn't use that word because we don't think about bowing down to golden calves. But boy, we struggle with idolatry, don't we? Every day is a struggle not to try to put something else in the place of Jesus And when we do that, we look up to that. We bow down before the thing that deserves, not our allegiance. Because there's only one who deserves that. We define ourselves by what we elevate. We find our meaning and purpose by what we elevate. We find our sense of not just identity, but happiness, joy. The things that we're all looking for. By the things we place in the highest place. And if Jesus is far above all else, why do we insist on trying to put something else in that spot? Here's the second thing. If Jesus is above all, you are beneath him. You are beneath him. Again, look at the directional term in verse 22. God placed all things where? Under his feet including you including you if you were to come up here and climb up here and look right up here on the very top what would what message would you see up here everyone's seen a ladder you know what that message says what does it say up there not a step right how many of us ignore that message now that's just a bonus step is all that is Why do they put that message there? Because there's something inside of us that says we have to climb. We have to get higher. This isn't high enough. No, we have to stand up here. You see, our world says to make something of yourself, you need to climb the corporate ladder. You need to climb the social ladder. You need to ascend to new heights. You need to expand your reach. We use all of those terms to describe one thing, and that is elevating ourselves. And when we finally get to that top spot, because that's what we spend our whole life doing, climbing the ladder, and however we define that top spot, when we finally get there, what do we do? We feel threatened by anyone or anything that may pull us down. And so how do we look upon others? Well, everyone else is where? They're down here, so we look down on others. Because we're elevated in our status and our influence and our privilege and our power. And it's so easy to look down on others. And to be threatened by others because they are doing the same thing we've been doing. Trying to climb this thing. And they're going to try to climb and remove us. And so we have to push them back. We have to keep them from removing us. Wall Street Journal did a story on the effects of power and notice what this reporter said he said when you give people power they basically start acting like fools he says they flirt inappropriately they tease in a hostile fashion and they become totally impulsive some have even compared the feeling of power to brain damage noting that people with lots of authority tend to behave like neurological patients with a damaged frontal lobe, a brain area that is crucial for empathy and decision-making. What does all that say? We spend our whole lives trying to get up here, and once we get up there, we go brain dead. We can't even think straight. We look down on others. We feel threatened. We feel paranoid. We have to protect and fight for everything that we've had because we've worked for it. We deserve it. Listen, this is not a step for you. This highest place is someone else's place. God has placed Jesus there. That's not your spot. That's not your step. That's not where you belong. Jesus, the Lord of lords, the king of kings, he is the one that is above all. And so if avoiding idolatry is sort of the practical implication of our first point, the one for this one would be, to pursue humility, pursue humility. I like what Andrew Murray said in his book, Humility, The Journey Towards Holiness. He said this, humility is the displacement of self by the enthronement of God. Look at that. Look at that again. Humility is the displacement of self. It's removing ourselves from a certain place and replacing it with the one who belongs there, the enthronement of God, the one who is king of kings. He says that's what humility is. He goes on, here's the path to the higher life, down, lower down. Just as water always seeks and fills the lowest place, so the moment God's fine men abased and empty, his glory and power flow in to exalt, and to bless. The Bible says it much more clearly. James chapter 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. You don't lift yourself up. You simply yield to him who is in the highest place, and he will do the lifting. And so if we don't lift ourselves up, who is it that we strive to lift up? That's point number three. If Jesus is above all, the church lifts him up. Again, a directional term in verse 22. God appointed Jesus' head over everything for the church. He has head over everything. We answer to him. He is our highest authority. Our allegiance is to him and him alone. He is the object of our praise. How does Scripture describe our posture and our movement before him? Are we to ascend? Are we to even stand? No. Back in Philippians 2, if you still have it open, look there. What does it say we are to do? It says every knee on heaven and earth will do what? Will bow. Will bow before him. That's our posture. That's our approach. Bowing is a sign of honor. It's a sign of humility and an act of allegiance. One day, everything that has a knee will get down on that knee and will bow before him. We will worship and we will adore him. We will place ourselves at his feet under his rule. But here's the thing, that's not just our future destiny, that is our current disposition. We are to bow before the Lord daily. Let me ask you, when is the last time that you literally, physically bowed down? When is the last time that you bent a knee and got down? I don't mean you went to tie your shoe or you went to see, you know, I need to look for something under the the bed. I mean, when is the last time you intentionally bent your knee, lowered yourself, bowed your head, fell on your face before the Lord? I bet it's been a while. Maybe it was when you were so desperate because you got a diagnosis from the doctor or you had news that was so terrible, so tragic, and you thought, I have got to to get God to intervene. And so in desperation, you bowed down. You humbled yourself. You got by your bed and you got on your knees and you prayed and you poured your heart out to God. Why does it take desperation for us to do that? It's going to happen someday. It's going to happen one day. Every knee will bow. Every knee shall bow. Why not start now? Why not start that now? Understanding where he is and where you are, it gives us perspective, doesn't it? When we're reminded that we aren't up here, that that alone is Jesus' place, the highest place above all, that we are here bowing before him, it gives us perspective for life. John the Baptist, who came to prepare the way for Jesus. Things were rolling along and people came up to John and they said, John, did you look over at Jesus? Look at all the people following him. We counted, and there's more people who are following him than are following you. What are you going to do about that? Doesn't that make you nervous? You need to step up your game. You need to do something. And I love what John says. Do you remember what John says? When everything inside us, when our flesh, when the world says, oh, man, someone's trying to take my place up here? i got to fight back. i got to go, look down on them. i got to do something. What does John say? John 3, 3 verse 30, he says, he must become greater and I must become less he must increase I must decrease don't you love that John gets it he has perspective he knows that Jesus is up there that he's not up there that's not his place he must become greater I must become less that's the perspective for daily living we need Well, most of us have stood on a ladder like this. Maybe some of you recently. It's a great tool. It's very helpful. But if you've stood on a ladder like this, you probably know the universal law of the ladder, and that is what? That as high as you reach, what you need to do is always right out of reach, isn't it? You always need to reach a little bit higher. That's why we stand up here. That's why we take this ladder and make weird angles. That's why we lean it against trees and it's on one leg. That's why we do all those crazy things because we've got to reach a little bit higher. Look at this picture of what this guy tried to do. Now that is ingenuity. Look at that. I could have come to some of your houses and taken that picture. I know. I've seen you. There's something inside of us that says you've got to climb higher. You've got to reach the top. It's what we do, it's how we live. But what if we considered a different way? What if we considered the way of Jesus? What if we willingly, deliberately emptied ourselves? What if we poured ourselves out? What if we made ourselves nothing? What if we leveraged all the status, all the privilege, all the glory that we think we sometimes deserve? And we leveraged all of that for the sake of others. Not to make a name for ourselves, but to honor his name. What if we lowered ourselves? And as we lowered ourselves, we acknowledged and recognized who is the one who is above all. We didn't put him there. God did. You can't move him. But you have a choice. Will you acknowledge that he is above all? That he is Lord of lords, king of kings, that you are beneath him. Him, that you bow down before him. That's a choice you have to make. That's a choice I hope you will make today. And what if we made sure our hearts and our lives are fully in line with Philippians 2? What if our attitude and our relationship with others, we had the mindset of Jesus? Boy, it would change some things, wouldn't it? Would it change your life? Would it change your family? Would it change your marriage if you're married? Would it change your friendships? Would it change the way you approach your job? How about your friends? How about your neighbors? You see, King Jesus is above all. Above all. That absolute language in the text is there for a purpose. It's to help us remember that there is nothing that goes before him. There is nothing that is above him, that he is above all. And that means something. That should mean something for you. This week, I encourage you to bow down. Bow down before him. And maybe you need to literally, physically practice bowing down before him. If it's in your desperation, that is fine. But maybe choose a time that's not in your desperation. Bow down before him. We want to walk with you. If we can do that, if we can encourage you, let us do that. In just a moment, a couple of our shepherds will be in the parlor. Their wives will be with them. They would love to receive anyone who comes and just wants to, to talk or listen or pray together. They would love to encourage you. Or you can come down to the front, and we will do that as a church family. We want to be a caring family. Maybe today you're ready to acknowledge that Jesus is where he is above all. And you're ready to make that choice, not to reject him, but to accept him as Lord over your life, to live under his reign and his rule, to live as a citizen of his kingdom, to confess your faith in Jesus, to be baptized into Christ, and let God raise you up. Because that's what God does. God raises you up as a new creation, with a new purpose, new joy, new life. Today, That can be your life. If there's something we can do, we invite you to come as we stand and sing. Let's stand.